History Lecture 36, Rabbi Blyweiss. I told you that uh, we, we, I introduced um, a, very, a very important figure, Yechezkel ben Buzi, uh, the great Yechezkel Ezekiel, if you must, uh, the prophet, um, who uh, I mentioned his several claims to fame. He is in the early years um, in Bavel and a major source of comfort, of Nechama, for the uh, traumatized, newly exiled uh, Klal Yisrael. And several episodes occur. Uh, we get these in overlapping sfarim, some of which come from his sefer, some of which come from Chazal, some of which come from Sefer Daniel, um, that are really momentous and, and, and really define a lot of this early period of Golis Bavel. Initially, a group of elders, Skenim, um, who had who were held who were holdovers from the second Golis, what I keep referring to as the Golis Yehonia, Golis Yehoyachim of the wise men, um, they decide to approach the Navi, and it's to their credit that they ask a Shaila, but their Shaila is really odd. They say, we've concluded Hashem has gotten a legal divorce from the Jewish people. We used to be married, that's our tradition, that by Har Sinai, that was really in many ways, on many levels, a proverbial marriage. And, and we got married to Kaddish Baruch Hu. He brought us into his chuppah, which would be Eretz Yisrael, the bridal chamber being Eretz Yisrael. And now that he's kicked us out, that's, that's considered a divorce. And on some level, since this, this has never happened before, you could see their logic. I can see their logic. It seems, seems to make some sense. So they asked the Shaila, they said, we've assumed, therefore, we should accept our fate. This is the way it is. It's tragic and awful, but what can we do? It's a divorce. Uh, and therefore, the next step is simply to assimilate among the non-Jews and serve their gods of, as the Pesach has in the Torah, eats the Evan, of, of tree and stone. Famous Pesach that um, some of the Mepharshim understand is referring specifically um, to eats and Evan. Did you get, do you know the reference? Yeah. Tree, and, tree and stone, Who's the, what's the tree? It's uh, Christian. Christianity, like the cross and the stone. Uh, Islam, Islam. Kaaba stone in Mecca, Islam in other words. Yeah, although there's different ways of interpreting it, and that's, that's what they, uh, they asked. It's the Vilnagod. <laughs> it's the Vilnagod, correct. So the, they are, they're, they're, for even having the question, we recognize them as Kofrim, as heretics. What are you talking about? Because Baruch never just gives up on us. He wants everything that he does is with um, tshuva, long-term rep repair, tikkun olam in mind. Uh, he's not about to just throw us away. Uh, and, and, and so suggesting this is a kind of heresy. Again, they, at least they asked the Shiloh. They didn't just do this on their own. The Navi answers them with unambiguous sharpness. He says, it's not true. Hashem has not changed. And what you need to do and what Klal needs, Klal Yisrael needs to do, we need to make tshuva. Uh, and then Hashem will, as it were, remarry us and bring us back to the land and start all over again and the balls in our court, the Navi, the Navi explains to them. On the same day, it's Chag Shavuos. Chag Shavuos, it's the uh, holiday of Matan Torah itself. Um, in fact, on that day is when we read the Haftarah from the first chapter of Yechezkel. And it's, I always think of the irony, where are you in the morning of Shavuos? Um, so many people are kind of having are falling over in their seats, doubled over. I mean, can you imagine? It's as if it's almost like they go to sleep in the middle of class or something, um, and they're falling asleep on the morning of Chadmas and Torah, and uh, and it's Afka, one of the most interesting haftaras of the year. Um, Hashem shows brings Yechezkel by prophecy 
his um, the Maise Kise Merkavas Kisea Kvodo, the divine chariot, as is sometimes translated, which is the ultimate vision of spirituality. Uh, if you look, for example, in the first four chapters of the third section of the Rambam's Guide to the Perplexed, the Mor Nevuchim, he goes into great detail explaining what this kise is. It's got four faces, every detail is, is critical. The, the human face was whose face? Do you know this at all? Really yeah, central focus. I talked about whose who's, who's human face does it resemble? Yaakov Avinu. Really close, yeah. Yaakov Avinu's face. All kinds of all kinds of levels. I'll tell you where you know this image. The the Meisim Merkava, most famously, is the story we were just making reference to a few minutes ago. Where we have the Meisim Merkava, Ben Azai. Did we just talk about Ben Azai? Where were we? Yeah, yeah. Thing? I mean, we did. But I mean, Arben Nichnasu the Pardes. Four goes into four Pardes. Only when really Akiva oh, comes out whole. The Pardes is another name for this. It it's all morning, based on this. It was your morning thing before uh, you mark. Oh, you're right. It was before the Marsh year. Right. You overheard us maybe in the back, but Aaron Ashid and I were learning this in Sorry. That's right. That's right. So it's a major, major image here, yeah. It's it's all of this, it's hard to describe. All of this is the uh, highest realm and it's a source of much discussion in the world of Kabbalah. Yes. Of tremendous significance as as this whole nevuah of Yechezkel really uh, is is our primary source for it. Um, now we already saw a navi had already had this encounter. I mentioned this not that long ago. Who is the other navi who has a similar encounter with the Merkavas Kisek uh, Kvodo of a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and he comes back and he shares it, and it's something that we have in our liturgy pretty prominently. Yeshaya, Yeshaya, and where do we have it? What do we talk about? We just said it in Mincha. Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. The Kedusha is all based on Yeshaya's description of the same thing. But here, and I, this should also be familiar to you, where Yeshaya being the city, city sophisticate, he describes it in the simple terms, in his spare description. So it was Yechezkel, I said this yesterday as well, from the country, his descriptions are much more elaborate. Um, he's never seen anything like the king's palace, anything like royalty, nothing like downtown Manhattan. Right, that, that, that's that, that's the idea. Um, Hashem, in turn, refers to him repeatedly throughout his sefer as Ben Adam, uh, not a, not a put down, but underlying the fact that he is very much the salt of the earth, very much a man of the land. The heavens open up. The image of the four the four creatures, the Ophanim, the Chayus Hakodesh, the the. Um, all of this is a great gift because Yechezkel doesn't just experience it, he brings this whole vision back to Klal Yisrael, he shares it with them, and it's the ultimate Nechama from Hashem because people will now know Hashem has not forgotten us. And if you put this in context, those of you who just walked in right now, we just, taught, we just had a, a, a real chutzpah question from some elders who wanted to know maybe it's time to throw it in because Hashem has given up on us. And immediately, almost in response to that, we have this image of the Meister Merkava, this powerful image that would resonate throughout history of the Meister Merkava. We're going to see, pay attention, some of our, some of our great names. Um, in, in, in uh, future generations will darshan what's called the Mais Merkava, something that the mission Chagiga warns uh, common people against but they would darshan the Mais Merkava I'm thinking of Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hanania uh, they're at Ach, um, Acher's Bris 
and then a fire surrounds them as the Darshani, the Maisa Merkava. I'm thinking of Rabbi Akiva. I'm thinking of Rabbi Akiva's great students. Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva's students, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, maybe you've never heard of him before. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, his also, his Darshani, Maisa Merkava, a major source of focus, and we'll, we'll certainly hear about it throughout history. Um, Hashem is, is definitely with us. Now, others... Remember we said at different levels of prophecy? Yechezkel's is a lower level of prophecy as described in the Medrash Begarab. It says he sees through what's called aspaklaria she'enam me'ira, a cloudy window. Kind of like I always picture one of those shower door things, right? You kind of see uh, the figure on the other side, but not much else, which is just as well. Uh, after all, he is, even though he got the prophecy in Eretz Israel, he's experiencing it outside the land, so it's going to be like one of those uh, things with like a telephone call with really bad reception. That's, that's the way to understand his prophecy. And that's why, if you ever study this, and like you say, in the world of Kabbalah, it is a, it understandably an area of tremendous um, curiosity. People are very intrigued by this. There are many, many enigmas, many, many mysterious aspects of Yechezkel's Nevoah, and that's because it was not so clear to him. Further, and no less significant, even more significant, he, he and he uniquely prophesies the rebuilt base of Mikdash, and I'm referring certainly to the second base of Mikdash, but it's the source of the final base of Mikdash is in the Sefer Yechezkel. I asked yesterday, did any, any of you learn Sefer Yechezkel? You learn Sefer Yechezkel? No, that's not Sefer Yechezkel. Uh, so Sefer Yechezkel, it's really worthwhile. And among other things, you probably have the most elaborate description of what the Besa Mikdash Lassid Lavo is going to look like. If it's familiar to you, it's not the same as the first and the second. I have a whole file on the subject. I don't want to branch off into discussion right now. We'll do this at the end of the very last class that we'll have uh, in history. We'll deal with the rebuilt Besa Mikdash. But among other things, where the other Heichal and the Dvir are more of an, a rectangular structure, the final Besa Mikdash will be more square and uh, have different dimensions, Yushalayim, the topography of Yushalayim will all change. All of this comes, comes to um, Yechezkel. Um, these are the details that the, the builders in the future will follow. Uh, now, interestingly, his Sefer was controversial, and even though it was included in the canon by the men of the Great Assembly in another generation or so, later, Chazal take the Sefer Yechezkel and almost put it in the Geniza, almost put it in Shemos to get it out of reach of any Jews because his prophecy about specifically Kohanim and the Korbanos, the service of the Beis Mikdash, seem near the end of the Savior actually seem to contradict the same passage in the Torah so that's kind of problematic um, we know a great hero, Atana by the name of Rav Hanania ben Chizkia um, reconciles the Psukim and saves the book for posterity, we have Sefer Yechezkel because we reconcile these contradictions um, they paskin that a, a, an individual is not allowed to learn about the Maisim Merkava. That's what I mentioned before in the Mishnah in Chagiga. Unless he's an unusual Talmud Chacham, and even then take care. Um, and then the story is told there about a brilliant child, an Ilui, a child prodigy, who was studying, and he penetrated the concept of what's called Chashmal, one of the angelic forces. And immediately, as he, as, he, as he learns about the Chashmal in modern Hebrew, these the sublime terms, one of the criticisms of the modern Hebrew language is that it takes transcendent ideas and renders them in totally pathetic, mundane ways. So Chashmal, which is one of the angelic forces of the universe, in modern Hebrew becomes electricity. 
Mitzvah. The ephod, one of the big day kahuna, one of the Kohen Gadol's garments, becomes a vest. And like that. Anyway, um, so the um, he darshin meisim merkava. Excuse me, he darshin the concept of chashmal, and immediately a fire came down and consumed the child. And again, Chazal wanted to put Sefer Yechezkel into the Geniza. And again, this Rav Hanan, Rabbi Hanania convinced them that this child was the exception to the rule, and it's really okay. Um, but Yechezkel is a potent, sometimes dangerous Sefer, and that's one of the reasons why it makes it so appealing. Um, I'm not done with Yechezkel, I'm really just starting and I'm getting to some of the good stuff as we go um, but I want to introduce formally another critical core figure in all of history, his name is Daniel, got that one? Daniel Ish uh, Hamudos Hamud in modern Hebrew is cutie pie but in, with the case of Daniel it's more than just that he was somebody who was um, an appealing, wonderful person who everybody uh, wanted to get close to and that was Jews and non-Jews alike he had that um, if you know some Hebrew, he had a certain chain, a certain charm, a certain glow to him. Uh, so I want to talk a little bit about Daniel now, and I also want to talk a little bit more about this figure that, uh, who has this long life, the bad guy on the scene, Nebuchadnezzar. Now you know what Chazal has to say about Nebuchadnezzar. He's, his major problem, who was it that asked the other day, what was, what was going on with him? What was your question again? Yeah, so Chazal say he had multiple notes, a complicated personality, but his was, and we've seen this quality before, he's not the first in history, we've seen some Jews, Yeravim, Ben Nevad, Dog, Hedomi, so he also was driven by power lust. And you can see it's, 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 why do you feel because, because he didn't initially. If you paid attention, you notice he, what, his goal was not to destroy the base of Mikdash, he wanted um, submission. He wanted everybody to submit to him, and when the Jews... And it unerringly rebelled against him. He took it personally, and he was, and, and, and so he, he he recognized their Achilles heel, their weak point, and he said, "Okay, I'm going to get them. This is what happens when you when you play around. You want to play around with Nebuchadnezzar. This is what what you get. I'm going to destroy your temple." Um, he was unsa- insatiable. Um, now, Chazal described him. Apparently, he was a dwarf. Um, interestingly, if you take a take a quick survey of some of the bad guys in history from Paro to Napoleon to Hitler. Uh, we, find a, we find sometimes there's that quality. Um, he was more than a dwarf. He had a thick body uh, shaped like a ball. Um, his voice was chirpy like a bird. That was Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know what your image of him was before. It's a very striking image. My image of him was tall, long. Yeah, right, right. Not at all. No. Thick body, round, tiny, chirpy voice. He looked at himself, what Chazal said, he looked at himself in the mirror, and he, no, he, he wondered, he said, I'm a king? Me? Meaning, you know, I can't believe I pulled this one off, kind of a thing. They'll, they'll, they, they, I got away with this? They think I'm a king? And, you know, that kind of um, insecure, the deep-seated insecurity falls, follows him through everything. You understand where sometimes people with this, with this mental outlook are unspeakably cruel because you start challenging them, you, you start making them, you know, you, you, you tread on these sensitive nerves and, and they get you, they, they won't forgive you for it. Um, he is insecure, impulsive, he is disgusting, he's insufferable, all in one. Um, I wouldn't suggest him as a shidduch for your daughters. Um, like Paro, and we're gonna see lots of parallel, parallels here with Egypt, and it, the parallel is intentional because Egypt was the last significant golos, and now in a sense we're back in Egypt, this time in Bavel. And so, like Paro, Hashem sends him disturbing dreams. 
and in the course of his dreams, um, he cannot figure out what they mean. He assembles his chachamim, and uh, he tells them, I, he's even worse than Paro, he says, I want you not only to give me a solution, I want you to tell me what I dreamt. He doesn't even share the content of the dream. At least Paro told him about the seven fat cows, seven skinny, skinny cows, not, not, not Nebuchadnezzar. Um, they answer, uh, Sir, Your Highness, it's just not possible. Such a, uh, such a, um, uh, an ability to interpret your dreams and to guess what you dreamt requires either nevuah, and there's no prophecy outside of the land of Israel, uh, or urim v'tumim. You need the uh, those those critical elements from the uh, begot of the Kohen Gadol that's usable in Eretz Israel. He said, he said, all of these things were only, these, these abilities to really see what you're, what you're asking to see were only possible in the base of Mikdash, you know, the one that you destroyed, sir, uh, been standing. And he, flew into, he flies into a rage. He said, how dare you let me get away then with having destroyed the base of Mikdash? If I would have known, I never would have done it. It's your fault. Uh, you, get, you get the psychological profile here? This is a man you cannot win with him. Right, whatever happens, you're wrong. That's Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so, he's furious, and he says, you're all chayiv misa. Death sentence on all of your heads. Now there's a problem. Included in his advisors is a very wise, youngish eunuch by the name of Daniel. Daniel pulls the Sarah Tabachim, the, uh, the, the master of the, the minister of... Uh, of the, of, the, of the flesh, um, of, the, of the butchering, um, I think I have the solution. And again, all parallels with Yosef at Sadiq are intended clearly, uh, not identical, but, but strikingly parallel. And you, can, you, can, you can use them as a, as a reference point. Is Daniel from Benjamin or Yehuda? Daniel is from um, Yehuda. So Daniel also has another name. Many of our Tzadikim have multiple names. Here he's called Balshitzar. It's a different figure. He's aged, even Ezra tells us he's 35, 34 at the time. Um, he is wise, he's of great stature. Um, he's the wisest of all his friends. Do you remember the name of his three friends? Very famous, we just said them in Slichos the other day. Hanania, very good. Mishael and Azariah. Those are the three friends, and Daniel is the wisest and the greatest of them. Um, how did he get so wise? That's a question that the Rav Sa'adji Gaon, one of the early commentators, explains. He got it this way. He said, you could try this at home, kids. He said, he said, um, Shema with Kavana, and he internalized it. I, I could do that. Uh, sometimes the secret to greatness is in front of all of us, and right there, and uh, anybody could be like Daniel. Um, he, as we know, had taken upon himself never to drink the king's wine, never to, con never to consume the king's oil. Oil was a big commodity in the ancient world, nor ever to taste any of the king's delicacies, and there were many. Uh, it, this is Dafka in a land of utter decadence. That's the nature of Bavel. Was, uh, was one of, 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 they had excess. I mean, you thought you saw excess. Anybody ever been to these disgusting displays at one of these five-star hotels downtown? Yeah. Ugh. Right? And you think, this is, this is Jewish. Galat kosher. Galat kosher. What do they call it? Galat kosher uh, chazer. The, um, the uh, yeah. So anyway, they had everything that, and, and anything in Bavel. And, and to top it off, Hashem 
understanding their predicament. I mean, here were people who have no, no choice of their own. Remember, they were carted off in the children's exile, castrated, and, and, and forced to become into a life of, of, of becoming a eunuch. Um, Hashem had given them a special leniency. They could eat what's called lechem tomei, the impure bread. Even the impure bread, one imagines if it fell into that little spot of wine, right, in the big, in the big uh, great ocean out there. Impure what? Makos, Makos reference? Okay, just you know, trying to connect all of our loose ends that we're talking about. Uh, you can have it, Hashem said. So he could have eaten, he could have drunk the wine, he could have had everything. Um, but Daniel took a stringency upon himself. They said, Hashem is allowing us, but we think it's just a Nisayon, it's just a test. And we want to pass the right. test, and we're not going to partake of anything. So then you have to ask, okay, so they're not drinking the wine, they're not eating the food, how did they live? And the answer is, this is really remarkable, they subsisted on water and bitter herbs. Pay attention to this, we're going to find this again. That was their diet. Um, the bitter herbs had the effect of giving them horrifically bad uh, breath. They stunk. And you wonder, why would Daniel and his friends want to, want to have this stench and carry it around with them? The answer, and I made a reference to this earlier, it had something to do with another one of Nebuchadnezzar's um, hobbies, can we say? He collected, um, mm, mm, not just men, women too, and assorted animals, uh, for as playthings. And eunuchs were certainly among those things that he liked to play with, and they became repulsive to the king who never had his way with them. And that was their Lashem Shemaim motivation in maintaining that lifestyle, eating those herbs, Otherwise, all servants and ministers in Muhadnezer's court, uh, he had his way with. Um, we're going to find similar behavior uh, in a similar, not, not around this time, of time in history, and somebody also subsisted on, herb, on, on herbs that, that, uh, with, that, that produced a terrible smell. Anybody know who I'm referring to? Okay, so stay tuned. Another one of these riddles that I lobbed out there that you'll hopefully will connect the dots uh, soon enough. Um, Hashem makes a miracle. Despite their poor nutrition, he, get, he, he gives them strength. Our job is to do Hashem's work. Hashem takes care of us otherwise. Um, he and his friends, Daniel, Mishael, Mishael Hanani, um, Azariah, all daven three times a day. Even though there's a royal decree that you're not allowed to daven, it doesn't stop them. Uh, they, there's a big pestle, a big, um, a big statue to idolatry. Everybody's required to prostrate in prayer, and they don't. Um, they just don't, and a Kaddish Baruch Hu makes an invisible shield around them, and they somehow get away with it. Okay. Again, you do, our job is just to do Avodah Hashem. He takes care of the, all, the, all the details. Uh, we've seen this quality in the past in history. Um, now, the king has had these bad dreams. Uh, Daniel, together with all the other ministers, are facing capital punishment. And Daniel appears before the king, and like Yosef, he says... I don't have the solution, Hashem does. And I can tell you, I can tell you what Hashem is, has provided in way of solution. Here is the dream, and it's, a, it's one of those dreams that you want to take note of. It's one of the pivotal central dreams in all of history as follows. Maybe you've heard of it, if not, you should know about it. The dream, yeah, the statue. You got it. The, the dream features an, a mysterious statue and is ultimately uh, and Daniel's telling him, he's telling him what's in the dream, and of course, how could he possibly know what's in, what's in the dream unless he has some kind of prophecy from Hashem, and Nebuchadnezzar is listening with his jaw dropping open, how did you know? There's a statue in the dream, right, Nebuchadnezzar? Uh-huh, 
right? And he's sitting and listening. And, and then Daniel explains, and the dream deals with the end of days. It's the ultimate vision, prediction of what the future holds for humanity. There is in your statue a massive figure with a golden head, silver arms, a copper midsection, and hips and legs made of iron and clay. Have you ever heard of this before? Yeah. Um, I know that when I gave this over a few years ago, y'all, you, by this point you know Asher Burroughs. So Asher, instead of taking notes, drew, drew the notes from this particular shirt. He, he, it was pretty impressive, the, uh, the image that he drew based on, this, based on Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Um, this image, again, golden head, silver arms, copper midsection, iron and clay hips and legs, is in the course of the dream struck by a stone that turns into a mountain. Get it? Can anybody interpret it? Wait. You have it? You know this? One second. I can interpret it. It's a metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> He's good, this one. I know the interpretation. Sign him up. What? You, you, you've learned this before? Yep. Uh, I watched this video and I learned it. Yeah. <laughs> Here's the explanation. Daniel goes like this Hashem is revealed to you, even though you don't understand it, He's revealed to all of us what's called the famous vision of the Dalid Malchios, the four kingdoms. The four kingdoms. As follows, that these are going to the four kingdoms that will follow Bavel. See, because Bavel is going to fall sh- sooner than you realize. Um, the fierce and mighty empire uh, that Hashem really provided for Bavel is that golden head. They're the first of the Dalid Malchios. The next is what's called Pras Umadai, Persia and Media. Persia and Media, which we'll see that why they're kind of joined together, two nations, but really one. They're, they're next, they're less mighty, that's why they're silver in compared to Babylonian gold. The next is copper, that's Greece. That's Yavon. Um, and Yavon is solid like Nehoshes. Copper is a very solid uh, uh, metal and they rule the entire world with a certain st- a stability. Um, the, the, um, In the case of Prasumadai and Yavan, a question is asked, because we know that covers the early period of the Second Temple. In which case, why do we call these four exiles? The Dalit Malchus are four exiles, but we're not exiled, we're in the Second Temple. You hear the question? I thought it was a kingdom. It's four kingdoms, but they're understood synonymously as being four kinds of diasporas. And the answer is that the Second Temple, to a certain degree, was an extended exile. We came back... <laughs> Kind of, but not wholeheartedly. It would nev- we never reached the grandeur of the first temple. And, and especially because during the, the Persian period and the Greek period, the Jews were su- um, subjects to the, uh, the dominant powers around them. So, uh, so they were not, re- they, they, they really, they were subservient. Okay, they were in their own land, but they were subservient. Today, by the way, the parallels, this idea, uh, many feel pertains today. True, the Jews are back in Eretz Yisrael. And uh, true, there's a certain sovereignty, but the sovereignty is by, in this case, identifiably Jewish people who are not maintaining a, an identifiably Jewish um, behavior and, and mode of living. They're not, it's not a Torah state. And so it, in some level, the Jews are, are subjected, uh, subjected to a foreign dominion if the foreign dominion is not defined by Torah. So you have a similar quality. So that's, then you have Persia, then you have Greece. Finally, by the way, everything I just said, well, okay, yeah. 
Um, and of course, the, 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 their, the last one is Rome, what's called Golis Romi. Um, many add Yishmael. It's not just Rome, which is Esav, but it's, it's Yishmael as well, which arguably is a period that we're still living through, uh, the domination of, of Yishmael. And these, these nations, this, this longest of all the exiles, is characterized as having iron and clay, uh, its hips and feet. What's that? We keep moving. That's interesting. I wasn't going to say that, but that's, I, I, that's a really good shot. We're the wandering Jew more so than ever. Um, but no, the iron, because they are the most pulverizing of all the previous regimes, Rome is a machine, a bulldozer, if you really want. And, and that's the iron. That's the image of the iron uh, rolling over everything in its path. Um, it's also got elements of clay because of the inherent weakness inside of Rome. If you think about the fall of Rome, Caligula, the rot, the, the, bur the constant sacking and burning of Rome itself. So all of those, you have the iron well, facade plus the clay and the weakness on the inside. Yeah? But the, uh, the eastern part was basically pretty stable, and that's where Israel was. That's fair. That's a, okay, I, yeah, I, I hear that. Now... Um, as the dream goes on, Daniel continues his, uh, his, his explanation. He says, Hashem is going to raise uh, more powerful than all, of the, all elements of the statue put together. Hashem will raise a mightier and eternal king, a melech. Of course, that's the Mashiach. That's signified by the stone in the dream. And it's going to overwhelm everything that comes before. What's another parallel in history that, you, that should be coming to mind right now if the Mashiach is symbolized by a stone and the, the Dalad Malchios are, are, are symbolized by this gigantic, you know, this gigantic Ego. creature? Ego. No, no. David and Goliath, for sure. This simple stone is going to fell the giant. It's going to topple the giant. Are these stories, like these obviously in Daniel, Yes. Like those stories with something in Beskal are in there in Yeshaya. But how far does the very other run? Diva Yamin is, is um, from the perspective of Anshik Nesigola, the men of the Great Assembly, is a sweeping account of all of history with a focus on the period of Bais Rishon and with somewhat into Bais Shani. So it includes this. It includes this period without much. We don't have that much going on here. Um, to finish off the dream, to finish off the dream, Hashem's going to send this stone that's going to overcome everything uh, beforehand, and it's going to ultimately, as we saw in the dream, it's going to strike the, the it's going to strike the statue and turn into a mountain. And of course, that's the days of the Mashiach, the days of eternity. Now, there's something really interesting. Those of you who have uh, some knowledge of Tanakh, you'll know that there's some very important commentaries around the side. There is on the immediate side of the text in most editions of the Mikos Kedolos something called Targum. Um, Targum, it's not Onkelis in this case, it's Targum Yonasan Ben Uziel, the same Yonasan Ben Uziel whose grave is very uh, uh, frequently visited in Amuka uh, in the north. People, yeah, just, just beneath um, Tzfat. And Amuka is a place people go if they're looking for a Shidduch. There's a school up for that. Uh, you're very. Yeah, Yonasan Ben Uziel wrote this Targum. We'll, we'll talk about him. We'll see him later on in history. So he wrote a Targum, and his Targum is informed by Ruach HaKodesh, and it's, this is the section of the Tanakh that interesting, conspicuously, um, his Targum doesn't cover, and this is discussed in Megillah, in Masechus Megillah, it was deliberate. 
See, Targum uncovers, unlocks secrets in the text. And Hashem deliberately uh, concealed the secrets in the text of this section of Daniel, because if it was revealed, we would know too much about the end of days. This Dalit Malchios, if, I mean, maybe you have no interest in the final apocalypse, in the final, uh, in, 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 the, in the eschatological future of the world. I want to know if all the movies were right. See, right, right, right. See how it comes true. Anyway, um, Dani, uh, we, don't, we don't have Targum on this, on this particular section. Uh, we're not supposed to know too much about the Ketziyamim, the end of days. Daniel completes his interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is absolutely flabbergasted. Absolutely flabbergasted. He falls on his knees before Daniel, and he does what most people in his position would have done under the circumstances, coming from a pagan background, he tries to make Daniel himself into an idol, into an object of worship. You great man, you interpret my dream, you predict, you read my mind, you know exactly in me, your explanation registers and makes sense to me. Daniel resists it. He says, no, 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 that's not me. Get up, get up right now. Nebuchadnezzar realizes that it's not Daniel, it's really Hashem, and that Hashem has majesty over the world, and Nebuchadnezzar, much like the, the Rav Tabachim, his chief butcher, the Nebuchadnezzar before him, suddenly has a moment of profound dread because he thinks, okay, if Hashem is really in charge and Hashem is the source of my dream, then there's maybe something to these Dalit Malchios. And that piece about Bavel kind of being pushed aside pretty quickly is scary. And so Nebuchadnezzar decides, and remember, this is something of, with somebody that this is characteristic of somebody with megalomania, who's all about himself, power, lust. He decides, okay, it's you and me, Hashem. Uh, I'm going to get you, and I'm going to get you by going after your people. And he decides, I'm going to sever the Jewish people's connection with the Kaddish Baruch And he has a devious plot about how he's going about doing this. He first, his first order of business is to promote Daniel over all the other ministers. Um, he requests similar positions for Daniel's friends, for Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah. Uh, and now he goes about his devious plot of making Klal Yisrael forget Hashem. Because he figures, not inaccurately, that if he can somehow sever that bond and make the Jews forget Akadosh Baruch Hu, then that will totally alienate a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and then he'll, and this, this part may get irrational, he'll somehow move in and be able to take, yeah, uh, have, have dominance over the universe. But isn't he thinking the opposite? Because like, Hashem doesn't get his strength his authority from the Jewish people. I mean, that was God before Jewish For sure, people. but you know, and we've seen this, we saw this as recently, think, think about this, we saw this, we saw this as recently as the wicked king Yehoiakim. Do you remember that he was so wicked that Hashem considered reverting the entire world into a state of chaos of Tov Avohu, and only because there were certain righteous Jews in the world did he not do that, did Hashem spare the world. Meaning there really is something to the fact that there are, in every generation we know, Lamed Vav Tzadikim, who are sustaining the world, without which the world could at any point spontaneously combust. Because we need these righteous Jews. And so on, on, on this level, this is exactly where the Nebuchadnezzar is going. He says, if I can somehow sever that, I'll be able to take over. He doesn't realize if he severs it, he himself is in trouble because the entire world's in trouble. The world depends on the connection between the Kaddish Baruch Hu and Klal Yisrael. That part, the Nebuchadnezzar got wrong. It's sort of like that. Either well, we we live or we well it's true. Not. Even when Hashem is punishing us, He's not punishing us to get us. Hashem is not, as the Christians sometimes project Him, not this kind of nasty, punitive figure who, who, who somehow delights in getting us as some kind of maniacal horror movie 
villain. Bahaha, got him now, you know. Uh, Hashem loves us. He's a Vinu Shema Shemaim. Anytime he punishes us, punishes us, we have to understand it's really for our long-term good. He's trying to bring us back to the right path. So the king is on to something. Of course, he's, he's, uh, he's totally devious and he's a little bit skewed as well. And he decides, I'm going to force the Jews to serve idolatry. And you remember the Jews at this point, the, the Yehudi, we said this yesterday, the name Yehudi was given to anybody who, had, who abhorred idolatry. And the Jews, of course, were the epitome of that. And he's going to subvert them. And so what he does is one of the most uh, elaborate, flamboyant displays in all of history. He builds a massive selim, a massive statue that is a replica of the same statue that was in his dream. It's 60 amos high, it's 6 amos thick. He goes down to the uh, vast, cavernous Dura Valley, Amik Dura, right downstream. Uh, Bavel, you remember, is known for its rich, lush valleys with its, with its many rivers and, and, uh, and, and very fruitful area. So it goes into the Dura Valley, which is a place kind of like a uh, you know, big ball stadium where everybody and all of humanity assembled, and that's what he does. He takes the gold and silver that he plundered from Yerushalayim. He uses it to build the gold, the gold and sell him. In the course of building it, it keeps falling over. Do you remember this? When did we have something that they used to, they, that, that kept falling over? Philistines. Philistines. That's what I'm thinking. Remember the Plishtim stole the Aram Kodesh? And everywhere they put it, uh, all their gods, Dagon and the other gods, fell over. It's, it's bowed down to it, exactly. So here the Tselem is falling over. Uh, the Gemara in Sanhedrin tells us that um, he chooses the valley, the Dura Valley, deliberately. Uh, cut, flashback, I guess if we were doing the cinematic version, we'd have a flashback right now. We're leaving Egypt. Before the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, a certain well-intending group of Jews from the tribe of Ephraim, the Ne Ephraim, uh, make a terrible mistake. They anticipate the end of the, of the Golas, and they, as it were, force Hashem's hands. And he says, it's time to go out of Egypt now. They do it too soon, too quickly. You can't force Hashem's hand. Uh, beware of that. We're going to see other individuals in history who try to do just that. They try to force Hashem's hand, and it doesn't end well. Um, yes. Repeatedly, we have to be very careful of false messiahs. We'll see, we'll see. We'll, we're going to talk about all of them, so everything in its proper time. This group of people from uh, the tribe of Ephraim leave Egypt early by mistake and die, tragically. And their bones... What's that? The story is brought in Sanhedrin, Sadi Beis Amud Beis. You can go look it up in more detail. Um, they're murdered by the men of Gat. Their bones wash away with the rain and they wash down to the fertile, to the fertile valley in Amik Dura and that's where their bones are. That was the legend, and remember, the Jews at this time in history are, uh, are still a historical people, unlike our generation, we've forgotten everything. They knew everything. They're walking around carrying their tradition, and the Dura Valley has that kind of haunted, uh, scary connotation to Klal Yisrael, because they remember the, the, the bones of Ephraim all down there. Nebuchadnezzar takes advantage of this, knowing that this will spook them, and he has it exactly in this place. He orders a massive army of musicians he sends for all the kingdoms of the world, which he's now dominating. Remember, he conquered the world. And now he calls for three of the primary leaders of each nation of the world. Each one is going to be in the front and center. And each one is going to be forced to bow down to this pestle. 
And of the Klal Yisrael, he takes none other than Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael as the three leaders to bow down. Not Daniel. Daniel's on the side, interestingly. Daniel is sort of above and beyond. He's got a special place because Nebuchadnezzar's a little scared of Daniel. Yeah, being kind of the, being the uh, voice box of a Kaddish Baruch Hu gives you kind of like a special status in Nebuchadnezzar's empire. And uh, reasonably so. Um, and they're all informed. See that um, <clears throat> cauldron over there? It's actually hotter than any cauldron of fire has ever uh, been in life. It's seven times hotter than the average cauldron. It recalls Avramavinu's cauldron that, that, uh, that he was almost thrown into uh, in the same part of the world uh, many years earlier. And he says, anybody who refuses to bow down, that's their fate inside the depths of that cauldron of fire. Um, Chazal described this as, without exception, the most extravagant display of idolatry ever. The goal against is, again, is not just to make Klal Yisrael, but to make all of humanity rebel against the Kaddish Baruch Hu. The king, according to the Medrash and Shir Shirim Rabbah, places the, I mean, it's so interesting, you have so many different sources about this one night uh, that uh, clearly it's a, it's a very, it's a, it's, a, it's a turning point in history. They even blame if they bow down, but like an ego, like they didn't want to bow down, the king places the seats, the holy seats, with Hashem's name, right? Seats Lashem. Um, he places the seats from the, the Kohen's garments inside the mouth of the selim of the statue, and the statue starts to speak. Nebuchadnezzar knows that the, the clay kodesh of the Beis Mikdash have miraculous properties, and he uses them deviously. Uh, <coughs> Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah have a problem. They don't know exactly what to do. They don't know if this is an opportunity for pure Kiddush Hashem or not. Kiddush Hashem is something that we don't necessarily, um, we're not sadomasochistic. We don't seek to end our lives. We're supposed to choose life. However, the times in life when a person is supposed to put his life on the line, we know there are certain, uh, certain things a person can threaten and say, you know, bow down, to idolatry, murder somebody, commit adultery, or anything along those lines. I talked about such a thing at the beginning of the week with um, threatening, if somebody threatens to uh, convert to Islam, and the Ritva and the Red Baz and many of the post game agree against the Rambam that a person would have to die for any of these things and not transgress. And that's called the ultimate Kiddush Hashem. The Rambam says a person doesn't have to die. For Abu no, for, for, for Islam. For serve for Abu If somebody says serve, serve that idol or die, you'd have, a person would have to die. But Rambam says, and many disagree with him, that if a person says you know, worship Allah or die, um, Rambam says that's okay, and the Ritva and many others say it's not okay. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's entirely resolved, but it seems there's a lot of people lined up behind the Ritva against the Rambam on that, on that point. Um, the, these three heroes are not sure if this is meant as Kiddush Hashem. Should they do it? Should they bow down? Should they not? They approach the Gadol Hador Daniel, and um, Daniel says, I don't know. Go to the Navi Yechezkel. They approach Yechezkel, and he quotes Yeshaya, it's a big Shaila, that instead of even finding out, they should try to escape. Don't even put yourself into that position. Don't die, but don't serve either. Just run away. They decide, this is, this is a long discussion, there's a big toast to us about this subject, they decide they want to be Moser Nefesh, they want the opportunity to do Kiddush Hashem. Sometimes Kiddush Hashem in the right place at the right time saves the world. Now, the night, it's the same night, it's Leil Yom Kippur that coincides with the Shabbos. The um, Hananiah and then Mishael and then Azariah all scatter among the throngs of the people. 
And so when it comes time for everybody, you know, I don't know exactly how, you know, everybody's supposed to bow down on three, three, two, one, the entire sea of humanity bows down to the tzelem, except for these courageous, proud three figures that remain standing tall in the sea of it. And it, it, it's, I mean, can you, you got the image in your mind? You should retain that image. It's the ultimate image of Klal Yisrael, the Jew, the lonely Jew against the world. I know, I think I just mentioned this recently. I know that uh, one of the recent tirades against Israel, somebody in the UN, somebody anti-Semitic in the UN, uh, was speaking sarcastically and saying, is it conceited in his condemnation of Israel so evil? Can you believe that, you know, that they're building apartments in Jerusalem? The height of evil. Um, and, I'm sorry, that's a little commentary. Um, the, uh, and, and, and he said, can, can it possibly be that the entire civilized world is wrong and somehow Israel's right? Sometimes, yeah, well, actually, as a matter of fact, uh-huh, uh-huh, that's actually the story of our life and our history. Frequently, we find the entire world bowing down to this ridiculous Selim that's only speaking because he's got the school of the seats in its mouth, and all the world is ridiculously bowing down, and three great Sadiqim, Khanani, Michelle, and Azariah, are, are standing upright at the, at the risk of their own lives. That's Klal Yisrael against the world, yeah. And here's what happens. That night, by the way, Zechariah, who's a young prophet, he has a prophecy too. I mean, everybody's there. Like all the Gedoli had everybody's got an aspect of this story. So Zechariah has a vision, a very colorful vision, of a horseman riding a red horse standing among these three great Hadassim in a pond. The pond, of course, is the swamp of Bavel, and the three beautiful, beautiful smelling Hadassim are these three Tzadikim. You said Mordechai was sent to Bavel too? Mordechai's here too, although he doesn't seem to figure prominently in this story. He's there. There, though? Presumably Mordechai is here as well. It's a very it, right. It's 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 a night for everybody to be around. Now the king sees the spectacle. He's of course outraged, knowing them to be tzaddikim, knowing them to be friends to Daniel, who's a bit of he's a stickle afraid of. He says, "Okay, uh, did I say three? We're gonna do this one more time, okay? One, two. I said one more time, and he tries. He he, he, he wants them to bow down. That's his plan. They call him a dog." That takes a certain gumption, no? That's, they're role models for us. You know, do the right thing and do it with style. That's Hanani, Mishal, and Azariah. And so the king, without any choice, if he's going to save face at all, he orders them bound, and they're, they're, they're bound, you know, inescapable. Harry Houdini couldn't get out of these bonds. Um, and they're, they're, they're told to be throw, throw them in the kivshan. The kivshan, again, seven times the usual heat. Throw them in. The officers assigned for the task take the three tzaddikim and chuck them into the cauldron. As the officers throw them into this burning furnace of fire, the fire is so strong that the officers on the outside immediately are burned to death. Meanwhile, Gavriel, one of our protective angels, comes down and miraculously, miraculously creates a cool center in the midst of this immense fire and the tzaddikim are all protected. Uh, we call it uh, one of these unique nes betoch nes. It's a miracle within a miracle, kind of like in Egypt, the, the um, fire inside the hail, the hail inside the fire, right? We have two, two of Hashem's basic ingredients of the world coexisting unnaturally. And in another medrash, it's like this. The Yalku Shimoni tells us like this. Nebuchadnezzar is watching with his mouth open the entire series of events. He sees the officers burn, those three figures that nothing's happening to them. They're five. <coughs> Wait, they're f one, two, they're 
four figures inside the cauldron. Unmistakable, you can make out. And they're sitting, sipping tea, trading divrei Torah. I added the sipping tea part. I think I, I, I reserve the right to have a little literary license on this story, but that's the image, right? They're sitting around. They're sitting. And then to move, now, now, see, now, now, pay attention here. Those of you who've been with me, those of you who've been with me up until this point, see if you remember this, this, what, what this reference to, because Nebuchadnezzar starts looking closer and he says, "Wait, that, that one's Hanania. That's Mishal. That's Azariah. But who's that? I, I know that fourth face. I've seen it before. Ah." That was a that was a while ago. That was the beginning of my life, time ago. I saw that face. And you know what it was? When did when did Nebuchadnezzar last see the face of Gavriel? No, when he was no, when he was a young. Remember this? A young soldier on the battlefield. And Gavriel came on Leil Seder when they when they encamped around Yushlaim under Sanhayrim when Chizkiyahu was Melech. And you remember that everybody, all one hundred eighty-five thousand. Soldiers in the battalion, then it was Ashur, all were killed by Gabriel overnight, and there were five and some say 14 survivors. Um, and among them were a very young Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar. Right, and he and took the steps, right? That's right, right. And he took the steps then, exactly. And, and now that figure's coming back to haunt him. He said, yeah, that's the same figure. And Nebuchadnezzar makes the connection. <coughs> He notices that none of them are bound anymore. He notices also that Gavriel is um, bowing down to the three men, and that's significant. You know that the angels complained of the creation of humanity, who needs them with the eight Sahara, and that indeed angels are on a loftier level than humanity, unless human beings tame their Yetzer and become Tzadikim, in which case we are potentially higher than even the Malachi Asharis. And so, symbolically, Gavriel is the one administering to the Tzadikim pure Mekadeshim Shemaim individuals um, as they sip their tea and trade their Vortlach. The uh, king calls them over. What else? What are the choices he have? They emerge from the cauldron unsinged. In fact, not even their clothes smell like fire. I can't do as well when I stand next to a campfire, but they did better that night. And the same night, the Tselim falls on its face, smashing into, into uh, a million pieces. What? The big statue. The big statue. Uh. Meanwhile, that same eventful night, Yechezkel Hanavi, standing across the, si- the other side of the valley in Amikdura, has yet another momentous, uh, oversees another momentous event. See, for 900 years now, over 900 years, these bones of the Bnei Ephraim have been decomposing in the valley, and they have lost their initial moisture to the point that they become dry bones. You've heard the expression before? Maybe the song, Dem Bones, Dem Bones, Dem Dry Bones, that were written about this exact event in Yechezkel. The Goyim know our Bible better than we do ourselves. We should all be ashamed of ourselves. They have songs about it. We don't know what they're talking about, the dry bones. There's a comic strip, the dry bones, all based on this. A famous, famous image of the dry bones. And Yechezkel oversees, um, it's not the first time we've seen Tchias Amesim. We saw by Eliyahu, we saw by Elisha, but arguably the most famous instance of Tchias Amesim, the revival of the dead. He does it, and Hashem takes advantage of the spectacle in front of all of the masses of humanity that are assembled that night. It's the greatest miracle that Yechezkel oversees. 
It's a sign, yet another sign, the final, uh, final events of creation, um, in addition to receiving the, the image of the third temple, it's, the final, it's an image of the final Chiyas Amesim. All of this happens, we learn, because of the schus of these three great righteous people, another major theme in history. It doesn't take many people to turn history around. Three tzaddikim, that'll do, that'll do just fine, thanks very much. Now, as Akasha asked, Yechezkel's a Kohen, how does he become Tameh Futriya Sameisim, similar to Eliyahu and Navi with the boy, and the answer is, they, uh, the halacha is, is when they come back to life, um, they were not Tameh retroactively. That's how Hashem has it. Hold the thought, let me just finish this one little section. At the time that the, that the um, that he's starting to revive, stir these these dry bones that are in the valley, um, Nebuchadnezzar himself is sipping his own hot chocolate, uh, and he's doing it with the skull of a Jew representing his cup. And as he's drinking his his, his uh, whatever it is, hot tea or hot coffee, um, suddenly the skull of this murdered Jew, uh, at the moment with the men were thrown into the furnace. The bodies become to start to move, and there's all these things are happening simultaneously, and the skull itself strikes him, smacks him in the face, and starts to come back to life. And so everything, I, I don't know how to film this one cinematically exactly, but it's a very eventful night. Um, with the bodies of, of, the, of the men and women and children of the Bnei Ephraim, the sinews coalesce, the flesh starts to amass around them, people are watching all this. The breath starts to surround, the, 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 the bones come to life, the, 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 the figures start to breathe until they're standing fully revived and they break into an immediate chorus, chorus singing Shira Sayam, excuse me, no, Shira Sayyichezgel, it's a separate song, uh, it's a separate song. We know whatever happened to these people who come back to life, the, uh, the Gemara in Sanhedrin tells us eventually they will marry, they're Jewish, they marry him with the rest of the Jews, they have children, and you and I may descend from them. That's what I was going to ask. Yeah, so, they so become so part of Pfizer. So we think of right when we think about the fact that we're Yehuda and maybe we're mixed with Binyamin and we got some Levim and Kohanim out there. We also have Bnei Ephraim and Shimon and Shimon too mixed in, and really other Shvatim too because remember they didn't all go into exile. This is all in the immediate aftermath of the first Chorban. It's in the Amik Dura in Bavel. Soon after, this is the beginning of the Golos Bavel. It's not a long Golos, and this is these are among the uh, the, the faithful events that take place. Um, finally for today, I just want to, I want to complete this. At the same point, Yechezkel is physically transported, miraculously, to the Shar Asherpona Derech HaKadim, to the gate that's facing the Kadim, right into the base of Mikdash from the east side. He comes to the area of the destroyed temple, and Hashem, further spectacled, has him witness the glory of the Shekhinah's return to, to, uh, to this world. Um, it's certainly a vision of the second temple which is imminently going to be rebuilt but it's the ultimate vision of the third base of Mikdash as it'll be rebuilt it's the third time he encounters the Merkava, the Maise Merkava uh, and it represents the ultimate future redemption um, the Pasuk says, Ata ben Adam remember he's, Hashem calls Yechaziel, you, you man, you salt of the earth you ben Adam Hagedis ben Yisrael esabais vayikalmu right? Show them the base of Mikdash and let the Jews be ashamed. Why should they be ashamed? They should be ashamed of their behavior. And Rashi says they're going to be ashamed because Hashem will not forsake them. Contrary to Nebuchadnezzar's assumption, Hashem loves us. And even if we forsake Him, He'll take care of us in the end of days. And therefore, we're going to be even more embarrassed because of our sins.
Um, Isn't it bad though because like you have to see that uh, the vision is going to have to be destroyed a whole other time before it can be rebuilt permanently? Say it again? When he saw the ultimate vision of the previous Omega, yeah. didn't he think like the disintegration has to be destroyed a whole second time before it has Interesting to point. comes back? Yeah. Good, po- good, good point. We're going to see Daniel. Daniel is going to get such a prophecy, and that, that weighs on him very heavily. You'll see such an Not idea. Like I don't know the answer here. Presumably, yes. Presumably, yes. Although, you know, since you get the punishment together with the Nechama, with the, with the reward, there is going to be a third temple. I'm sure that served as the ultimate, uh, you know, comfort to him. Um, do you want to know whatever happened to Mishael and Hanani and Azaria? Should I finish that today or leave you in suspense till Sunday? <laughs> briefly. Briefly. Um, Nebuchadnezzar blesses Hashem that night, and he decrees uh, he decrees a punishment on anybody who would disparage Hashem. Um, and the next day, after spe- facing the spectacle and seeing, you know, a lot of the time the non-Jews recognize Godless in a way that we sometimes are blind to. That's why we have people like uh, Eliezer in this week's Parsha, Parsha's Chayisara. Like we have Yisro, who recognize the greatness of Hashem in ways that Jews sometimes overlook. Um, they ask the Jews, they say, Hashem can do these kinds of miracles and you would forsake him? You worshiped idolatry? Um, what's very interesting is after, after Hanania, Mishael, and Hanania leave the Kivshana Eish, we never hear about them again. The Psukim and Daniel never describe them. Chazal don't really report, except for one, with one exception. Um, whatever happens to them. There's one opinion. Well, there are different opinions. Whatever happened, we don't really hear what, what their story is. There's one opinion that they went to learn Torah with a Kohen Gadol by the name of Yoshua. We'll, learn, we'll meet Yeshua in the future. Some say they died from what's called Ayn Hara, the evil eye, that night. And probably the most famous explanation, some say, this is all in Gemara and Sanhedrin, Mesu or Tavu Baroque. They, they drowned in spit. See, because when they emerged as eunuchs, uh, they emerged and all the nations say to them, um, they, they said, this could happen and you, the leaders of the Jews, would let it happen. You must be responsible for your nation's insubordination to Hashem. And they started, they proceeded to spit on the three tzaddikim, tavu barok. They drowned like in spit. We've, this is the theme of the day, isn't it? Um, it really is. It really is. Um, now, we know that they were childless, obviously, if they were eunuchs. Um, we know that the Navi Yeshaya says that eunuchs had a special portion in the uh, house of Hashem. It's a puzzle we read on fast days. I gave, uh, I gave in my house, um, in my walls, a, a, an eternal memorial better than sons and daughters are the tzaddikim in the image of the Kiddush Hashem. We talk about them a lot. Pay attention in davening. They come up. The, the image is one that should be planted within us and we'll see it repeated throughout history of noble, righteous Jews doing a similar Kiddush Hashem. We'll continue on Sunday.